Hi everyone, welcome to This is the Song, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lasan community and beyond. So sit back, relax, be inspired, and learn something new with us. On today's episode, we are joined by Franz Newland, an associate professor in the Earth and Space Science and Engineering Department at the Lasan School of Engineering. We chat with Dr. Newland about how he developed his interest in the space sciences and he tells us how he ended up at Lassonde after working around the world at various institutions, including the European Space Agency. We then discuss his research on satellite technologies and his involvement with the CubeSat team here at York. All right, uh, Dr. Newland, uh, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Uh, great to have the chance to talk to you. Yeah, we got a, we got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in. So I think our audience would like to know a little bit more about you. So what kind of work do you do at York and what classes do you teach? Great question. So I am one of the teaching focused faculty in the song. Uh, I get the privilege of teaching all sorts of fun courses uh, from the capstone course uh, and a course called the Cross Campus Capstone Classroom, C4, uh, which is an initiative I uh, created with a colleague from Dance of All Things, where we bring students from all across campus together to work on complex challenges together. Uh, I am just finishing my role as the undergraduate program director for space engineering. So I've had uh, a chance to work on space curriculum and we're coming up with some interesting innovations in that, which we might get into later on. Uh, but I also get to teach a lot of the space courses. We have a fun course where our second and fourth year space students get to work together. So the very first space course you take and the very last space course you take uh, those students collaborate on designing a space mission together, which is which is great fun. Uh, I teach uh, the professionalism course, Eng three thousand, which gets me access to uh, pretty much any student in engineering in the song, which is a wonderful chance to get to know people. Uh, so I get I get to teach a right mixture of things, which is wonderful. So you do a little bit of everything, huh? Renaissance man, huh? <laughs> yes, exactly. Renaissance engineering really drew me to the song in the first place. So, so how did you know that? space sciences was the right path for you. You know, I know most kids, you know, including myself, are very interested in space. You know, I want to be an astronaut, like, at a young age. So was that the case for you, or was this something that came later in life? Another great question. So I grew up in the shuttle era. Uh, I saw the very first shuttle launches when I was young, and um, experiencing what it was like to see uh, such a large vehicle take off and, and really see the types of things that we could do in space was definitely inspiring. When I first wanted to do my degree, I think I was more focused on aeronautical than, than a space focus. Um, when I was young, we lived in the States, so I flew around a lot. I flew between the UK and America. And so the idea of uh, doing something to help design future aircraft was something that excited me earlier on. But as I did my degree, I got the chance to actually work on uh, some space missions and uh, look at the Earth from space and see how this small blue dot in this giant universe actually has uh, a role to play. So that's what really got me excited. And then through my career, I had the opportunity to go really deep into space engineering, space mission uh, design, spacecraft operations, all those types of things. What kind of space missions did you work on? Uh, another great question. So uh, the very first space mission I worked on was 
uh, Cluster 2. So this was a mission looking at the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, it flew four spacecraft in formation to actually measure uh, the spacecraft, the, the Earth's um, magnetic field uh, at different points and get a real sense for how it changes uh, as the sun activity changes. This magnetic field that surrounds the Earth that protects it is actually uh, squashed by the sun's effects when the sun gets active. And when we see things like the auroras at the North and South Pole, uh, those are actually an effect of those charged particles from, from uh, space and from the sun actually coming in. So that was the first mission I worked on. I got a chance to work on the uh, NVSAT mission. This is a spacecraft about the size of a coach that the Europeans launched to do a lot of Earth uh, sensing. And then the biggest mission I worked on was ATV, the European Resupply Vessel for a Space Station. Uh, again, about the size of a double-decker bus and uh, autonomously docking to the space station, which is a crazy thing to see. Uh, in all those missions, I was responsible for training the team who actually operated the spacecraft. So I uh, simulated the spacecraft. I had a team of people focusing on simulation and then uh, coming up with training scenarios to help people work out what to do in case of a contingency. Um, I then moved over to Canada and worked on uh, other types of missions, small spacecraft, so uh, microsatellites, uh, nanosatellites, cubesats, uh, some as small as your hand almost. And in seven and a half years, we built five missions from scratch to uh, in orbit. The very first mission we actually built, we went to a Montana, it's not far from campus, and we designed the mission on their tablecloths because they have those paper tablecloths, and we took away the tablecloth at the end of the mission, uh, at the end of the meal, and seven and a half months later, we had a spacecraft in orbit. So that was kind of crazy. Wow. So you talked about like micro satellites, so it's satellites that can be as big as your hand. That yeah. This sounds, this, I know this is probably going to sound, you know, very silly. I'm showing my inexperience here, but I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know that satellites could be that small. <laughs> so there are different classes of, of satellites. And in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen an explosion of these small missions that can actually achieve really interesting things. So uh, microsatellites are typically about the size of a dishwasher. So they're still a reasonable size. Um, and then we get to a class of stuff like called uh, CubeSats. Those are 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. And you can get multiples of those. So you could have a 1U CubeSat, which is 10 by 10 by 10, a 2U, which is 10 by 10 by 20. And you can sort of put them together to build really interesting missions that can achieve really complex things. And then you can get things called Pico satellites, which can be as small as a credit card. And literally, they will have a very simple radio on them. They might have a, pa a solar panel or not. They might just have a battery. And they might have a simple sensor. And they can collect some interesting data and send it down to the ground. So uh, spacecraft sizes have definitely shrunk over the last uh, couple of decades. So when you're using a satellite that small, uh, I imagine you know it saves a lot on like money and resources, right? Is that the main benefit to using a really small satellite? There's a few things. The way I like to think of it is it can help democratize space. So if we think about historically, uh, early space activities were limited to countries with very big budgets uh, or who put a lot of resources into it. 
And, and now we're starting to see the potential for uh, any country or potentially, you know, farmers in a country think about, we want to know about uh, the quality of our, our land, where we need to irrigate, and maybe a space infrastructure provides us something that we can't get through our land infrastructure because of the country we're in or things like that. So there is that potential to democratize space through these lower cost missions. On the flip side, uh, there is a huge challenge uh, in space around space debris. And as we get more of these small missions, we're actually creating a lot more junk in space, debris in space, that is actually uh, not always easy to clean up. And as people, we're not very good at cleaning up after ourselves. <laughs> and so we are creating a lot of challenges for the future that we need to be thinking about and tackling. So you talked about like space junk. So when I think of like the dangers of space junk, I'm thinking like something abandoned, like an abandoned satellite. Could that get caught up in like a planet's orbit or something? That, that, that's all I think of. Yeah, so uh, great uh, topic to discuss. So uh, if we put a spacecraft into what we call a low Earth orbit, um, at the lowest levels, we're probably around sort of 400 kilometers, which is about the height that ISS flies. A spacecraft of the size of one of those CubeSats might be up there for, for a couple of years um, before it, its orbit slowly degrades and enters the atmosphere and burns up. Uh, but if we put that same spacecraft into uh, an 800 or 900 kilometer orbit, so not much higher, it will be up there for probably a thousand years because there's that much less atmosphere at that height that there's nothing bringing it back in. Uh, and so when we think of low Earth orbit, we're typically talking about typically between sort of 400 and 1200 kilometers, so pretty close to the Earth. And there's a huge difference in how long we'll be up there if we're at 400 or if we're at 1200 kilometers. We could be up there for uh, many centuries if we're up at 1200 kilometers. Uh, York's first CubeSat mission actually was testing out a technology to help deorbit these small spacecraft. The descent mission that we launched in the middle of lockdown uh, was thinking about uh, how can we deploy a, a tether mechanism that will increase our drag that can pull us back into the atmosphere much quicker. And so that's a really important thing to be thinking about for, for future uh, missions to avoid that debris. If we think about missions that are operating at higher altitudes, we, we talk about sort of near middle Earth orbit for things like the uh, GPS GNSS satellites, the ones that we do our navigation with. Uh, those are at a much higher altitude, sort of 20,000 kilometers. And we don't really have a good solution uh, as to what to do with those at the end of life. And then if we go out to geostationary orbit, we're out at 36,000 kilometers from the Earth. And what we do with those at the end of life is we kick them into a higher orbit. And over the next thousand years or so, they will slowly degrade back to that geostationary orbit and be a problem for future generations. So what we're doing in some orbits is just creating problems for the future generations to solve. And that's never a good solution. So thinking about how we can do that differently going forward is, is something that there are people that you're really uh, focused on. And that's a really, really good thing. That was just something that I never even considered just, you know, satellites and debris being just, just stuck up there because it's not like you can just walk out and just grab it, right? Like Exactly. And one of the big differences with space is if we think about junk on Earth, um, it might take a few centuries to degrade. But when we're talking about junk in space, it could be up there for millennia. 
And so it's a much, much longer time frame that we're thinking about this stuff piling up. And we've only been putting it up there since the, the 60s, let's say, but in that time, we've actually got a lot of junk in space. And as a human race, we're not doing very well at cleaning up after ourselves. So why does it take so much longer for you know space junk to degrade? Is it because as you go further up, there's, there's less like in the atmosphere to really break it down? Yeah, so... When you are in orbit, there are a few different forces that act on you, but they're much less than if you were in the atmosphere or on the Earth. So uh, you obviously have gravitational pull, but that keeps you in orbit. Uh, you have certain perturbations that will disturb that. So drag from the atmosphere is one, but down at 400 kilometers, it's quite significant. It will bring you in fairly quickly, but up at... Uh, even double that, 800 kilometers, there's barely any atmosphere to, to create that drag. There are other forces in terms of uh, the uh, flux from the sun, um, in terms of other gravitational perturbations and so on, that will change the orbit over time. But in terms of bringing it back to Earth, uh, there's nothing really doing that really quickly. Another challenge is, now that we're putting up lots of things into space, we're putting up some pretty big constellations of hundreds of spacecraft. We also need to worry about the impact of these things if and when they do come back to the atmosphere, because burning up spacecraft in the upper atmosphere is ultimately adding to pollution in the atmosphere, and it's in a region of the atmosphere where it can have bad effects. So uh, not necessarily a great solution always just bringing it back uh, and letting it burn up either. Yeah, so with your current knowledge, where do you see this going in a, a couple of years? Like, where do you see technology going to mitigate this problem? I think there will be a, a desire to move away from the current uh, plan where we have uh, guidelines for what to do at the end of life. I think there'll be a need to actually, A, enforce those guidelines internationally, which we're historically not very good at doing, and B, think about how do we get better guidelines to actually think about the materials we're putting into space. Uh, so when they burn up, then they're having less impact on the atmosphere. Think about uh, what we actually are going to do with these higher orbits so that we can recover spacecraft at the end of life. And maybe think about uh, different ways to use the space uh, resources more uh, effectively, efficiently, uh, sustainably, and recognize that uh, when we're talking about sustainability, we're talking much longer time frames than when we're talking about that on Earth. Yeah, I guess that makes it difficult. It's literally a whole different world. So, <laughs> Yeah, great, great, yes. <laughs> so I want to shift topics a little bit. You talked about the CubeSat team here at York. So for the students who might be listening to this episode, could you tell us a little bit more about the CubeSat team and what they do? Yeah, so we have a few different CubeSat teams, actually. Uh, for the very first uh, space mission, it was primarily our, our graduate students in Earth and Space Science who were uh, building the mission, uh, along with a collaboration with uh, George Zhu from Mechanical Engineering. Uh, he's the principal investigator in a lot of the missions that we develop. Um, uh, other faculty include you know, people like Regina Lee, who's been very heavily involved in space mission uh, for the small spacecraft. Um, and uh, the uh, student team designed, built, tested, launched, and operated this, this spacecraft with faculty help. The, the next mission that's coming up, the Essence mission, is due to be launched hopefully sometime next year. 
And this is a, an undergraduate team with a few graduate uh, supervising uh, members and some faculty coming in to help more punctual. So this is a team of uh, first to fourth year students who are heavily involved in designing, building, testing, launching, and uh, ultimately operating the Essence mission, which is coming up. We also have a team that works very closely with uh, Hugh Chesser, uh, that is a, a genuine York uh, CubeSat team. Uh, it's a club-based activity, and they are designing, building, and launching a, a, another uh, CubeSat mission. So there are a number of these things happening in parallel. Um, and then we are looking at innovation in the space engineering program as well. Uh, we, we are seriously considering whether we can actually change the core of the space engineering program so that in doing the engineering study, we could actually design, build, launch, and operate spacecraft, maybe launching a spacecraft every four years as part of the learning and not just as part of extracurricular activity. Yeah, so bring it, putting it as part of the core curriculum. Yes, yeah. So you talked about there being an undergraduate team and how in the future it might be a once every four years kind of thing. So for the students listening, you know, current students or even prospective students, what would you say is the best way for them to get involved? So at the minute, the best way to get involved in the Essence mission is to reach out to uh, Professor Zhu in Mechanical, reach out to myself, reach out to the team directly uh, to find out about what they're doing, to uh, help them through the remaining test activity and get ready for operations. Uh, for the uh, CubeSat team, working with Hugh Chesser, uh, he would very happily connect uh, any student to that team. Um, and then for the future, we're actually running uh, this summer, we ran last summer, a program where we are thinking about how we would restructure our engineering education to allow students to design, build, and launch, and operate a, a spacecraft every four years. Uh, this summer, we actually have a group of Egyptian students joining us uh, to uh, work on uh, the mission requirements review for a space mission to help uh, Canadian communities in the north address water quality issues. And so uh, looking to the future, we're hoping that we will be able to engage our current and future students on that redesign of the program. And maybe in a few years time, we'll be kicking off uh, this, this new way of actually building a spacecraft as part of uh, the program itself. So you talked about this, uh, this idea of monitoring water systems using satellites in, uh, for places in Canada. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, so uh, in our first pilot run of a new way of doing space engineering, we brought together 20 students from all four years of our current program and some students from outside space engineering, uh, recognizing we need sort of a lot more voices in, in, uh, involved if we actually want to design a future mission. And they took on the question of how do we empower Northern communities to have more of a say around issues of water quality? We know that uh, water quality in a lot of northern, in particular indigenous communities, has been a big challenge. There are boil advisories in place that have been in place in some cases for decades for some communities. And nothing seems to be moving that needle very quickly. So what can we do as a, a community of space engineers to help? And what we were thinking was, 
Could we provide a way for the community to have their own data on the quality of the water they're getting, on the quality of water outside their immediate community where they might be in their hunting territory or that is feeding the uh, livestock, the animals around them? And so the design of this mission looked at how would we go about creating a space mission for a community, with a community, where the community is empowered to make decisions about the, the mission that can actually help that community have a greater voice uh, when it comes to an important issue like their water quality. And the team that came together last year proposed a mission, came up with the mission concept that holds together, that suggests that we could fly a, a CubeSat mission to uh, help communities in the North actually address these questions. And they came up with some really important rules for any engineering work that were things like helping the community make decisions about engineering requires providing them some education, but compensating them for the time it takes to give them that education. Uh, we also need to learn from the communities. If we need work to be done in the communities, uh, then we need to offer that work to the community in the first place. And so these were some really interesting uh, impactful guidelines that last year's team took on when they developed this, this water mission. Now, I really, really like what you said about having that community lens because, you know, sometimes it can feel like as engineers, we get so focused on you know, our work that we need to remember that, that we're doing our work for people and communities. And it's important to be cognizant of those implications to those communities that we're working for. 100%. So one of the things that we're really trying to dig into in this redesign is in what ways does engineering connect to community? And recognize that as engineers, we don't necessarily always need to be polymaths. We don't need to be able to do everything, but we need to recognize the importance of the people who have those other skills and how we connect to them and use their skills so that we can build the best solution for the needs of the, the real world, that we're not producing a solution that doesn't have a problem connected to it. We want to be thinking about what's the real challenge the community has, how do we best situate ourselves to uh, help them be empowered to, to actually help us build the solution. Exactly. So how important is it for students to have this, you know, this really hands-on practical experience you know, outside of the classroom? Another great question. When I think about the issues around uh, engineering today, we have a lot of uh, tools and technologies that can help us do the uh, design work. Um, the, the need to understand the uh, fundamentals uh, still exists, but I think we need to be focusing more on uh, how we can apply the tools and technologies to uh, practical issues, practical challenges, and understand where uh, that difference lies. Because when we hit the real world, that's when we recognize there are differences and we need to think about those differences and account for them. And a big part of that is actually recognizing how what we do impacts real people, what real people actually need, and also thinking about the impact we're having on the world around us, the environment, the uh, the water, the how we're resourcing things, where are we doing the work? Uh, and those are questions that 
Uh, we're not necessarily aiming to have, as I said before, we're not necessarily aiming to have all engineers be able to answer all those questions, but we need them to know who to connect to in society to help answer those questions and get that information as they go through that design process. I mean, I think that's a perfect answer to segue into our next topic, this idea of collaboration. I want to talk about something that's very important to all of us here, and that is EDI, that's equity, diversity, and inclusion. So uh, you've kind of answered it before, but I'll ask again, how important is EDI to you know, research, to students, and for solving engineering problems in general? It, it is really fundamental. I think if we think about every aspect of society today, we can recognize the ways in which uh, how we have created structures uh, in the past has led to the current way of thinking. And that could be, if we think about uh, colonial structures, if we think about uh, the gender uh, power dynamics that exist in the world today, uh, uh, if we think about other types of power dynamics around racism and, and so on, a lot of uh, the things that we might take for granted or might have taken for granted are often unintentionally, in many cases, a, a byproduct of some of those power dynamics or biases that exist. So, you know, we all hear the, the really unfortunate and uh, examples of things like the uh, hand dryers or soap dispensers that only recognize certain colors of skin. But there are so many other ways that these power dynamics can actually affect the ways we think about or design or, or, or do work. So deconstructing those and thinking about other knowledges, other approaches is actually something that will allow us to get to solutions that actually help everybody in society uh, more equitably, uh, that allow everybody's voice to actually matter in the design work that we do and the engineering work that we do, and ensure that the solutions actually uh, serve real people and are of value to all of society and not just the cross-section that maybe currently has a lot of that power. Perfect. So one last question to, you know, to really, you know, close everything. How can someone, you know, even just a student, you know, someone like me, help to spread EDI in, in the Lausanne community? Wonderful question. In many ways, I think EDI is a journey for each of us. Uh, when we're thinking about our own personal intersection with those questions of equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, with the questions of uh, our power, we, we maybe uh, need to do some reflection work. Uh, I know for, for myself, I started the EDI journey from a position of ignorance. Uh, I then went into a position of denial where I, I wasn't ready to accept some of these things. And, and then when I opened my eyes a little bit, I think I recognized that I was, was angry about some of these things. Why didn't I know? Why couldn't I fix this? Why is the world like this? And it's only sort of going through that journey that you get to a place of, so what does action look like for me? What can I practically do? Uh, how can I continue on this journey? How can I ensure that it's a journey that I'm constantly exploring the world through other people's eyes, through other, uh, you know, taking the path that other people's feet have taken and recognizing that 
Um, all of us have this rich tapestry of coming together. So just being open to other ways of thinking and doing. And if I'm confused or challenged by a situation or somebody else's thoughts, maybe ask myself the question, is there something about somebody else's context that um, I'm not thinking about when I hit that confusion or challenge? That would be a, my suggested starting point. Yeah, I think you described the journey that sort of a lot of us take because when something challenges our viewpoint, it's really easy to just kind of you know, deny it and then say, no, I'm not the one who needs to change. But I think, you know, just being open-minded in general is it's just a really good place to start. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, well, Dr. Newland, that was all the questions we had for you today. Thank you. This was a really, really great, interesting, and informative interview. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to ask these questions. I really enjoyed the rest of the series, and I'm uh, excited for the opportunity for the conversation. Thank you very much. That was Franz Newland, everybody. We are so lucky to have had him on the show. I know I learned a lot from him. Before today, I never even considered the issue of space waste. It's also great that students are being offered hands-on learning opportunities where they can apply and solidify what they learn in the classroom. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, this is Lassonde.